Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for joining me on my ground rounds discussion this afternoon. Um, I am Alberto Contreras, a second year infectious disease fellow uh, here at the University of South Florida. And today I will be talking about LGBTQ plus 101. Um, and the goal of this conversation will be to provide a little bit of knowledge and understanding uh, regarding the um, LGBTQ with uh, um, as well as focusing on their health and health disparities um, with the end goal that we as physicians and providers feel more comfortable while caring for this population. So as you all know, <laughs> I like asking questions. Um, can anyone tell me what this, uh, what LGBT, what the full acronym for LGBTQ plus is? Uh, and Googling is not allowed. So, um, and, and don't worry, um, I also have to look this up. Um, it basically, um, all, it's LGBTQQIAAP, and it, there's various, um, um, there's different versions of the full acronym. It just kind of depends on um, wh who is talking about it, what who they're trying to include, I guess, most of all. Um, basically, this acronym is an attempt to capture all of the individual populations within the LGBTQ um, community. Um, and so, um, as you know, it, well, it stands for um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and so on. And so they're trying to, this acronym just tries to um, include every every person in that um in that population but it can also um be further stratified based on the people's age their health their socioeconomic status ethnicity and even their geographic location um and so um also on this slide you see here i have the the pride flag um, this initial flag was first uh, commissioned in 1977 by Harvey Milk. He was a um, gay um, rights advocate and was also the um, city supervisor of San Francisco. Um, so he commissioned this flag um, many years ago before his murder. And so um, each color has a different meaning. I won't go into what um, e each color means, but you'll notice the as I go through quickly through these the flags, um, you'll notice um, many of the colors um, being reused or similarities within the flags. This one here is the um, the six color pride flag. It's probably the most well known of all the LGBTQ flags. Um, if comparing it to the prior flag, you notice that the hot pink is missing. And it, it is believed that the reason for that is uh, the hot pink fabric was hard to find. So that's why this one became popular. This one here is um, the lesbian flag. It is one of the lesser known flags. And there's a lot of, uh, it was created in 2010, but there's a lot of controversy within the lesbian flag flags because um, certain subgroups feel it doesn't appropriately encompass all the um, lesbian community. Um, 
but um, this next one is the gay man's pride flag, also another um, lesser known pride flag. And it's kind of a re revamp of um, earlier pride flags. Um, this here is the bisexual pride flag. And so you see the, the pink and the blue on the corners with the purple um, kind of blend, uh, the blend of the, uh, which is the blend of the pink and the blue in the middle, kind of symbolizing the attraction to uh, both genders. This flag here you may be more, more familiar with. Um, it's the transgender flag and represents um, the 1.5 million uh, trans people living in the U EU, as well as the 1.4 million trans adults living in the United States. The white in the middle um, repre also represents the, those um, intersex or those who feel they don't identify with any gender. This last flag here, this is called the straight, al straight ally flag. So as you can see, the six main colors of the pride flag uh, overlaying the black and white of the heterosexual flag in the background. Um, and so basically, um, the people that would carry this um, are heterosexual individuals that support equal civil rights, gender equality, um, and obviously also challenge homophobia, transphobia, or even biphobia. Um, this is the full. This is this full spectrum of letters and abbreviations of the um, LGBTQ acronym. As um, you can see here, there's two main things I wanted to point out that are kind of, um, I guess, stand out a little bit. So um, this one here includes those that are questioning their sexuality. It also includes the allies and. Um, the main thing is that, so, and you, you see in the very middle, there's um, the Q for queer. Uh, initially, this this term was a very derogatory term and uh, kind of an insult towards the LGBTQ community. But now it seems that the um, LGBTQ community are kind of taken over this word. So by um, using this word, themselves, they've kind of um, diminished that um, derogatory or negative connotation that it, it, it had. And so now it's the, the term queer has kind of evolved to be more of an umbrella term, um, trying to um, inclu include um, the, um, the various um, identities within the LGBTQ community. So to talk about a little um, about different um, terminology, basic terminology. Um, so sexual orientation describes how people, uh, who people are attracted to. Um, I just wanted to point out that it's not always something black or white. There's in-betweens um, and it, it can be something that, that is fluid. Maybe at a, a certain time in your life you find yourself um, just uh, at, in one uh, place and later on you may um, reconsider that. Um, I put here the Kinsey scale to kind of give an example of this, um, even though I don't think this was Alfred Kinsey's initial intention of the 
the scale. It, the main thing, the main reason I put it here is just to show that it's not always black or white. There's a lot of in between. Um, and so as you can see here, and um, who was Alfred Kinsey, you may ask? So he was a, um, back in the 1920s, 1930s, he was, um, is, I guess, he started doing research on the mating patterns of, of a species of wasp. And uh, from there he started, he expanded his research to um, include hum, human sexual behavior um, and, um, his work was focused on being, was, was very avant-garde, or as my parents would say, very, he was very open-minded for his time. Um, and so as you can imagine, someone working on sexuality and publishing on this topic, um, and being kind of open and receptive to trying new things was, received a lot of, um, critiques back in the 1930s, but nonetheless, um, his his publishings um, did help uh, land him a, a, on the cover of Time magazine in 1953, and it is believed that much of his work set up the kind of the framework for the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s. So now that we talked about orientation, we also have to um, address the concept of gender identity. And so this is how you yourself identify. Um, if you are cisgender, that means that your um, your biological sex and your gender identity are congruent. If you're transgender, it means that they the they don't match. Um, and so, um, and I also put on this slide um, gender expression. Uh, many people put uh, identity and expression as separate things, but I put them here uh, here because I think um, how you view yourself, how you uh, how you what you think your identity is, also has a role in how you express yourself. Uh, meaning, kind of what you feel on the inside can also be reflected on the outside. So, kind of in other words. Um, this may mean like, do you express yourself uh, in a more masculine way, in a more feminine way, just to kind of keep it simple? Um, and granted, um, even though you may, your, your gender identity says something, you may still not express yourself fully out of fear of um, being rebuked or some social stigmas. Um, so um, it, it doesn't always hold true, I guess. Um, and I put here this genderbred person um, just because I thought it was a simple um, and easiest way to remember these terms that I just talked about. The um, How you identify is the brain, the attraction is um, your heart and um, the sex. Expression is on the outside. So um, just some more basic terminology. And this here is just um, with mainly with regards to trans patients. Um, it is okay to ask, if you don't know a patient, it is okay to ask for their preferred pronouns. So that, that would be a simple um, starting point. But also, um, it, 
just to say things I've heard in kind of everyday talk, uh, I've heard trans patients being called he, she, or um, she, he, or it, or even transformers. None of these terms are acceptable. If uh, you do this um, in, in front of your patient, not only will the patient be mad, um, there, there may be, um, well, they will definitely be mad and they're, uh, they will um, speak up their mind and tell you that um, you're wrong and um, the way that is not the correct way to address them. So, um, and the trans population is already under um, a lot of stress. So we, we as physicians do not want to add another stressor and we don't, and um, as doctors and providers, um, our job is to take care of the patient and not discriminate. Um, so that's why I put this slide here just to, so, so we can understand some of the basic grammar as we try to establish this rapport with our patients. Um, another thing to point out here is that um, it's no longer acceptable to say like sex reassignment nor sex change. And kind of the reason for this is because um, these people are, uh, the trans uh, community, if they do decide to have um, surgery, they are having surgery to affirm their gender. Um, they already know what their gender is. They're just making sure that their outside also matches what they know on the inside. So now that we got the basics down, um, there are a lot of disparities that affect the LGBT community. Um, and even though there is, um, the LGBTQ population is increasing in numbers and there is more acceptance uh, and equality of the LGBT people, um, the health needs and education of health professionals still lags behind. What research there is has mainly focused on gay adult men and um, has not really looked too much into um, other gender orientations or other identities. Um, and it also doesn't really include um, men who identify as being heterosexual yet still have sex with men. Um, so kind of on that note, research is limited on lesbians, trans patients, and even the elderly. Um, which is also an increasing uh, population. Um, furthermore, as physicians, um, depending on the medical school, some of us may have received just four or six hours of education, LGBTQ education during medical school. There are some medical schools that don't even include it at all in their curriculum. Um, so there are definitely gaps in knowledge and skills. Um, and on top of that, just um, knowing that there's gaps, um, being able to teach someone um, is affected by our own implicit biases. And um, so kind of another thing to um, be aware um, as we try to change the, the, this in medicine. So, why is it important to talk about LGBT health? Um, I kind of already alluded to this, 
But there is an increasing LGBTQ population, not only in the U.S., but also worldwide. Um, people are living longer lives. They're um, living healthier as they um, as um, our medications have improved and we're being um, more diligent with our screening uh, procedures. Um, but also you may ask why um, is the LGBTQ community, community growing? Um, or there, there seems to be more people. I know I've heard that um, in kind of general talk. Well, for one, uh, pre people who previously lived under fear of being rebuked or um, stigmatized, um, since they may be, they may feel um, more comfortable being open about themselves. Um, and the reason for this is, well, now we have the internet. So um, if they have any questions, um, the internet provides a good um, starting point for them to kind of look into, um, do some research. But, and then also on that note, the internet also gives us social media. And so they see other people who are in similar situations and, as them. And so it kind of gives, makes them feel empowered that um, seeing these people be comfortable and be happy, they in turn may also have that. Um, so this slide here is looking at a concept called minority stress framework. Um, there's various takes on this concept um, and each author um, has their own different um, diagram or way to show this. But basically the, the main concept is that um, they each one tries to show how different stressors impact a person, um, kind of keeping the, the individual kind of at this um, at the center with their whole social ecological system around them. Um, and so you can see here that basically an individual is af affected by their, their partners, their family, coworkers, church. Um, and in each of these uh, levels, they face, um, they can face potential prejudice and discrimination based on um, heteronormativity expectations of society. Um, and so overall, the concept of minority stress is linked to um, psychological and physical health disparities. Um, this um, article here published in the um, American AHA um, basically tried to focus more on what stressors um, led to or affected cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. So what they, they basically kind of came up with the same thing that there is all these life stressors all and would lead to cer certain behavioral factors, increased tobacco use, um, and, and also um, which can then in turn affect um, their cardiovascular status. Another thing they found was that um, the poverty rate um, in the LGBTQ population was higher than in the 21.6%. Uh, 
compared to 15.7% in the um, United States overall. Um, and then they were able to kind of further divide this and to show that um, bisexual men and women have the highest, have a higher rate of uh, poverty rate. Um, they also found that transgender women carry a um, disproportionate burden of HIV compared to non-LGBTQ people. Um, and obviously, as we know, HIV is associated with um, higher um, cardiovascular risk, including dyslipidemia from um, potential medications. Um, trans patients also tend to be on, can be on hormone therapy, which can then be another um, contributing factor to their cardiovascular disease. Um, as far as when comparing like LGBTQ populations to non-LGBTQ populations, they, they didn't see any um, significant difference in their physical activity and, and BMI. So as far as providers go, I kind of mentioned, we have to be conscientious of all these stressors um, that I mentioned in the prior two slides. Um, many of the, or LGBTQ people are, um, are plagued with basically the same worries that a heterosexual person will be. But then on top of it, they have to face their own stigma, their own internal stigmas, um, their own discrimination for being, belonging to the LGBTQ population. And so as physicians, we, uh, we need to do our part to ensure that we're not adding another stressor. And the reason for this is that um, as you can see here, 18% um, of LGBTQ adults avoid seeking health care for this. Um, they, um, and then 16% of them have um, identified discrimination in health care. Um, there was actually a study done around in 2006 uh, looking at nurses and nursing students um, and also took into account their knowledge and attitudes towards the LGBT uh, community. And so what they found was that 36% um, of nurses and 9% of nursing students would refuse to provide care to homosexual patients. That's a significant amount. Since then, there's been um, follow-up studies and um, what they found was that um, basically the less knowledge a healthcare provider has of the LGBTQ community, the less likely um, and less willing they are to provide care um, to this community. Um, and so here, um, just to compare also, uh, this is uh, also on this slide I have um, just looking at trans patients. And so you could see that um, trans patients avoid healthcare even more than just the general LGBTQ population. So talking about stressors and health disparities, we can also look at the LGBT youth. Um, and it's important to talk about them because youth are particularly vulnerable um, since they are just barely figuring themselves out 
um, they sometimes may not know how best to cope with um, these stressors that they are bombarded with um, from all, and they can be bombarded with these stressors from all, all types of, um, from their whole environment, their, whether that be their family, their school, and even their partners. Um, so as you can see here, there are some very impressive statistics that I took from the CDC website um, regarding LGBT youth. Um, more than a third were bullied on school property. 23% um, had experienced sexual violence. 18% of them had been forced into non-consexual sex. And um, nearly 60% of LGBTQ youth feel unsafe in school due to their sexual orientation. On top of it, I'm sure some of you have heard um, of conversion therapy. So um, something I came across as I was um, reading this is that um, LGBT uh, people are, have a higher rate of suicide attempts than just the regular population. Um, but those that are sent to conversion therapy are even at a higher risk. And my, my guess is that um, probably because these youth, um, well, the, your home is supposed to be a safe space. And so in these LGBT youth who are sent to conversion therapy, I imagine they, they don't view their home as a safe space. Um, so it kind of creates a... a an environment of abandonment or being alone, which then increases their risk for suicide. Um, also, um, something that has become very um, popular within the LGBTQ community is the, the a term that is called your chosen family. So maybe since they're youth, they're young, um, they may not be fully aware that the family you're born into doesn't always have to be your family. Um, th this chosen family is kind of the substitute for your family and they provide the, the their support um, that an individual would need. Um, another disparity is that um, substance abuse is very prevalent within the LGBTQ community. And it's something that we, um, see with patients and it should be also something that we regularly address and bring up. Um, can anyone tell me what this is that we're looking at in this picture here? Um, I kind of blocked the name so you guys um, to make it a little bit more difficult for you. But these are called poppers. Um, they're basically nitrates usually amyl or alkyl nitrates. Um, they're sold online, they're sold at novelty sex stores, um, and they come in these little bottles that you see here. Um, the reason the CDC and the FDA warns about them, well, for one, um, the, the FDA has not evaluated, evaluated them for safe use. And then the CDC is um, does not does, on top of that does not recommend them or um, is warning against them because of their dubious 
marketing um, strategies, we may say. So sometimes they're marketed as liquid incense, deodorizers, air fresheners, you kind of get the picture. And they also look like those, um, what are they called? Those six hour energy shots. Um, so makes it easy to understand why there's a concern that they'd be mistaken and someone may accidentally overdose on that product. Um, and poppers are basically, they're inhaled and um, as nitrates, they cause um, smooth muscle relaxation and vasodilation. So the goal, uh, they're supposed to make intercourse more easier and more pleasurable. Um, the problem is that um, people will many times combine them with other um, medications or drugs, including Viagra or, or Cialis. So you can imagine that then you run into um, other side effects like hypotension, um, syncopal symptoms, and I guess a wor worst case scenario, even death. Um, and um, talking about other drugs, um, just to give you a, an example, um, there was an, a national survey done by the NIH in 2018 that showed uh, drug use is significantly higher in the LGBT population. Um, 30, uh, 37% used marijuana compared to 16% of the overall adult population. 9% um, used opioids compared to 3.8%. Um, it also showed um, that alcohol use was not um, significantly different comparing the two groups. Um, but addictioncenter.com um, does show that uh, 20 to 25 percent of the LGBTQ population have severe alcohol dependency. They are 12.2 times more likely to use amphetamines and 9.5 times more likely to use heroin than their heterosexual individuals. Um, so it could be because maybe they, they uh, LGBTQ people resort to drugs as kind of a, a way of numbing feelings or depression, or maybe uh, also maybe numbing, numbing um, anxiety or fear. Um, but also it, within the LGBTQ um, population, which maybe not necessarily just limited to that, but to them, um, but there's also this new thing that's arising um, called chemsex, which is basically uh, using drugs uh, with the intent um, to be high while you're having um, sexual intercourse. And so here, um, this is by Dr. Roy Zucker. And so he basically, uh, from the LGBTQ Medical Center in Tel Aviv, and he basically looked at different combinations of drugs um, that may be used and kind of which ones are the worst. Um, and so basically what, what he was showing is that anything with crystal meth um, is um, highly addictive and dangerous. Um, you may see um, 2C, 
um, that's um, also pink cocaine, which I think is like a substitute for um, MDMA, if I'm not mistaken. DMT is also known as Dimitri. Um, and that's a, like, it, it's a hallucinogenic that was kind of used in traditional um, religious ceremonies in South America, but now it's kind of uh, become more prevalent. Um, and um, another thing, um, another thing I wanted to point out is that the impact of Pride events. So Pride was created as this. Um, To, its original intent was to promote health and wellness among the LGBTQ uh, community. And in case you don't know, June is Pride Month. So um, in the uh, near future, there'll be lots of um, Pride events, um, marches, etc. cetera. Um, but um, there is a downside to this um, I guess what started out as a, a good thing could potentially, I guess, um, may have been taken advantage uh, by certain people. Um, we know, we have known for a, a long time that um, the tobacco and the alcohol industry tend to market their products to at-risk communities. And so we already know that the LGBTQ po population tends to drink and smoke more compared to the heterosexual population. So there was a study um, looking, it was published in the American Journal of Public Health, looking at um, sponsorship for Pride events. And basically what they found was that only 70% of the events they looked at um, reported where their sponsorship came from. And from those that did, 60% of the pride events were sponsored by the alcohol industry so just a food for thought so what can we do as physicians and other providers to help make our practice more inclusive and friendly for lgbt patients well there are multiple things that we can do as far as the practice goes um, or the location um, some things that you can do for example you could wear uh, like a badge re reel um, to kind of show that you're uh, you're an ally you're supportive um, you can have um, lgbt friendly stickers or pamphlets um, posters um, just with the intent um, to include everyone from the lgbtq community um, and another thing that's kind of important to uh, think about is to make the um, admission forms more gender neutral and a little bit more um, open, I guess. Because um, sometimes these, when you walk in to see a doctor and you start filling out these forms, this is basically your first impression you get of the clinic. So, um, maybe adding a transgender box instead of just having male or female um, would help kind of capture that extra information about trans patients. Uh, instead of putting like a marital status, maybe you can put relationship status 
So it's kind of a broader term, but it could, once again, make it easier for people to relate to that. Um, and just in case you're seeing patients and you have any doubt when you're taking the history, um, the main thing is um, just to not make assumptions. Um, and when in doubt, don't make assumptions based on um, their behavior or their or someone's looks. Um, when in doubt, just ask. Um, and the patient will, will likely more than uh, will be more uh, happy to provide that information. Um, during your visit, if you have time, you could also talk about how out they may be. Um, and just kind of um, in your patient provider discussions, just make sure to kind of address that everything's confidential. It's, be, um, it's, it's a confidential conversation and just um, between the two of you um, and maybe try to explain why you're asking the questions. Um, that because on our end, we may know that the answer to these questions guide our screening practices. Um, but if you don't tell the patient, they may be skeptical um, or, or about your line of questioning. So it's better to just be be open about uh, the reason behind the these questions. And many times, the patients will simply reciprocate. Um, I think I previously mentioned that um, lesbian patients tend to not seek medical care. Um, on top of that, um, they also tend to keep their sexuality private, both from their um, physician and from their work environment, just out of fear that they may be discriminated against. Um, but regardless, you should still provide um, the same age appropriate screenings that you would to any woman in your practice. Um, including even STD screening. Um, the main thing here is um, don't assume um, that a woman who currently identifies as a lesbian has no risk for STDs. Um, sometimes they may have had a male sexual partner in the past, um, and don't assume that they are not sexually active. Um, they still may benefit from STD screening or safe sex counseling. Um, another thing is, just like men, women can come out at any age. Um, so keep that in mind. Overall, the, the guidelines for um, care of gay and bisexual men are basically the same as heterosexual men. Um, however, you need to take into consideration certain risk factors that are more prevalent in the gay and bisexual community than, than in the heterosexual community. For one, um, Gay and bisexual men tend to be uh, of lower socioeconomic status, so maybe their diet is not as good. They may not have access to the same health care. Um, there's also a higher rate of STDs and HIV among MSM people, um, as well as kind of the higher uh, tobacco and drug use that I have previously mentioned. Um, also, don't forget about um, frequent mental health screening um, as depression is also more prevalent. Um, and kind of as, as I, I just mentioned, since HIV is more prevalent, don't forget to talk about PrEP with uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis with your patient, especially if they've been sexually active in the past six months, if they've had um, prior positive STDs screens, 
or if they've had um, prior IV drug use, IV drug use um, these patients may be good candidates for enroll uh, for us to enroll them in these services. Um, I also put um, hepatitis here just because it's something that we usually check when a patient is admitted to our care. Uh, we check, um, we also immunize them for hepatitis if they aren't already immunized. Um, but depending on their risk factor, don't um, forget to continue, ch continue checking for hep C screening, um, especially in patients with IV drug use and, and or chem sex. Um, HPV is another important topic that kind of should be on the back of our mind um, when discussing preventative care with patients. Just because um, HPV, is, HPV is mainly associated with general warts, as you know, um, it can also lead to cancer. Um, HPV-associated cancer is not common, but it is on the rise. So uh, make sure you talk about to the patients about that vaccine uh, offer vaccines if um, if age appropriate um, and so um, um, I also came across this BuzzFeed quiz that I put here um, because I personally have had talks with patients regarding uh, screening and their sexual practices. And um, I remember, like, it took me a while to realize um, the first few times I was very proper and using language that was taught to us in, in medical school. And, um, and I remember just in my mind thinking, why is the patient looking at me with this blank face? Um, until one patient was like, are you asking me if I top or if I bottom? And, and that's when it clicked, like, um, that. Um, the terminology I was using, I thought was, I was being respectful, but um, in reality, I wasn't, the patient wasn't understanding me. And so, um, so just kind of based on the rapport you have with your patients, think about using colloquial terms as it may make the patient feel more comfortable. Um, and, uh, and it may also, not only that, it may provide them a sense that you know what they're going through and how to take care of them also. Um, and the second reason I put this picture here is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's not always black or white. Just because a patient tells you um, that they're a bottom or they're a top, um, it doesn't always mean they're always going to do that. There's, there's a middle ground, they may switch, um, etc. And um, so um, labels are just labels and they're not always um, have to be the same. Taking care of trans patients can sometimes be a little bit more daunting. Um, for, at, for any patient, we have to kind of create this holistic picture. But I think for, for trans patients, it's even more important um, that we have this holistic picture um, that is not limited to just their medical history, but also um, being conscientious of what gender they were assigned at birth and how they um, identify currently and also uh, know what surgeries they have undergone. Um, 
and at the same time, kind of being aware of those stressors in their life. Um, trans patients have a significant, a much higher lifetime suicidal attempt compared to the general population. Um, just, just to 40% versus 1.6%. That is, I can't even fathom like that, that it would be such a big difference, but they have so many stressors in their life. And so um, it's important for us to continue these mental health screenings and depression screenings, and maybe even find out about what, what stressors they may have in their life. Um, unemployment, their living situation, et cetera. Um, going back a little, um, I mentioned surgeries. Um, you want to make sure um, you ask the patient what type of surgeries they've undergone, if, they ha if they've had top surgery, bottom surgery, or even if they um, want, to want to have surgery or don't want to have surgery. Um, for one, if they still have a cervix, um, they still need to undergo pap smears. If they've already um, had bottom surgery and they no longer uh, have any of the, uh, have the, um, have had a hysterectomy. So um, then you don't, you don't have to continue with um, cervical screening. Um, I put this uh, graph here just to show that not because th there's I, just to show that there's um, even within the trans population, there's um, differences in what the patient wants, how they feel, um, and so and how they express themselves. Some may want hormones, some may not want hormones. Um, some may have surgery, and some may not want surgery. So just something to kind of keep in mind, um, and just talk to the patient about what they're, where they are, and where they see themselves going and, and how you can help them in that process. Um, with regards to hormones, uh, as far as I'm aware, here in the US, um, they don't like st starting um, hormones until age of 18. But I was looking at some guidelines. And so um, in some places, they do, if there's well-documented gender dysphoria, they do start um, GnRH um, hormones just to either delay or block puberty just to avoid make, making that gender dysphoria worse. Um, and then once they hit 16, then they'll start the patient on um, hormone therapy. Um, and so that, that's kind of um, something to keep in mind depending on your location that um, that may be uh, a different thing. A, a different guideline for hormone therapy. Fortunately for us, uh, we mainly deal with adults, so I don't think uh, we have to worry about using GnRH because um, honestly, I personally um, would not feel comfortable with that. Um, but if I had to, uh, I would definitely read up and just do the, be a patient advocate. Um, the other thing about, I, I put silicone here just because sometimes there's these, um, like a, a trans female in an effort to make themselves um, look more feminine or beautiful, um, they will go to these silicone workshops 
where they'll just inject silicone. And um, sometimes the initial results may be good, but over time they can cause scarring, infections, um, other side effects. Um, so just something to keep in mind and um, try to counsel the patient about. Speaking of hormones, I just put these um, tables here to kind of look at the basic um, effects and remind ourselves of the um, effects of the masculine, masculinizing hormones versus the feminizing hormones. And you can see here that basically most of the um, effects start like two or three months and don't peak for about two years or so. So um, something to um, kind of know, like counsel your patient on what to expect as they um, start um, hormone therapy. And also don't forget about if you have a patient on um, hormone replacement therapy, um, don't forget to counsel them about the risks associated with hormone therapy. Um, particularly, well, they have a higher risk. If they're on estrogen, they may have a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, for breast cancer, and um, thromboembolic disease. And um, I mentioned this, many of the patients smoke. There's a higher smoking tobacco use, a higher rate of tobacco use in the LGBTQ population. So maybe doubly, doubling, uh, putting more focus on counseling about them. Um, and um, I came across this NYU campaign that to me sounded, nailed it. Um, to treat me, you have to know who I am. And so um, it, kind of going once again, you have to get to know the whole patient, establish that rapport, um, create this safe zone so that the patient can talk to you and feel comfortable um, and don't make assumptions. When in doubt, just ask. And so um, these are my references. Um, I'll now take any questions.